Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity, recorded at the pod at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stewart. Today, we talk about architecture, its great triumphs, its failures, and where London and the world are headed. The buildings we live and work in define our lives in more ways than most of us are aware, and so many people have a say in how they're designed, from city planners to security consultants, architects, and engineers. Up for discussion today, diversity in architecture and why it must be a means to an end. Housing trends that could divide society or bring it together, and why many young architects are choosing public service over private practice. Making contribution to the good of society Mm. depends on the budget you have, Mm -hmm. or depends ultimately even on the client you have, or the site you have. It's about how do you make decisions in the circumstances that you're making that put people right there in the equation. Let's meet our two conversationalists. I am Farshid Musavi. I am an architect. I'm also a professor at Harvard Graduate School of Design. I'm Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic and I'm deputy director of the Architecture Foundation Think Tank. Iranian-born Farshid Musavi is an internationally acclaimed architect and educator who founded her own eponymous practice in London in 2011 after first establishing foreign office architects in the early 1990s. Her projects range from the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland to the Victoria Beckham flagship store in London, with a portfolio that truly crosses continents and categories. She's a member of the Board of Trustees at the Whitechapel Gallery, as well as the Architecture Foundation in London. Phineas Harper is a deputy director of the Architecture Foundation, an independent, not-for-profit think tank in London, as well as being a critic, author, and writer. He writes a regular opinion column for the online magazine Dezine, and is chief curator of the 2019 Oslo Architecture Triennale, along with architecture and engineering studio in Terrabang, and the academic Cecily Sachs Colson. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you think makes makes a place and how architecture like participates in the creation of a place. Hmm. What? I yes, that that's that is a good question. Um, I mean, I think that uh, buildings together uh, cumulatively make cities, and uh, so the scale, the form, the materiality of buildings alter and construct our experience of the city. I think very often people think that. You know, you need urban plans to make mm. to make cities. But actually, you need, depending on what city you're in, whether you, there is kind of that kind of planning can occur, which in London uh, doesn't. Um, but ultimately, it's down to the individual buildings. And I think that buildings can be aspirational. We read into them their kind of level of commitment that they have to the city. Yeah, you mentioned planning, uh, which I guess is kind of like one of those nerdy things that normal people don't think about very much, but architects think about all the time. So the planning system kind of determines the framework with which anybody can build a building um, in a country. And small changes in the planning system or the planning culture have kind of profound impacts on how a city grows and evolves and changes, how an area can be destroyed or, or rejuvenated or whatever. 
And you've obviously built here, but also in mm. France and in Japan, mm. uh, in America. And I was wondering like, how you found working within those different planning systems. It's something that we think about at the Architecture Foundation quite a lot. We have all, London is broken up into lots of different boroughs. Each borough has a different planning team. Each team has different skills, strengths, and often weaknesses. And often like being an architect is sort of nothing to do with drawing pretty buildings. It's to do with how you negotiate with those planners and how you kind of interpret this complicated rule book in order to deliver something that can get through the planning process and still <laughs> and not kind of lose all of its magic. Mm. Yeah. What, I mean, how I, do you find the difference in those different countries? I think they have their own potentials. I do mm. like London's, let's say, agile system. You know, it's a negotiated city. It's not a planned city. So every site defines, has to define its own rules and, you know, define the potentials and go and, and kind of uh, negotiate it with the, with the authorities, let's say. This doesn't allow you to do long-term planning. And it does mean that, you know, the, the vision for an area of the city will be down to just an, a kind of an accident of what personalities uh, come into play at that moment in time. Yeah. So it means that, you know, different individuals can come in and, and perhaps at some point money for the cultural sector is less, but some other sector comes in and allows the city to move on mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, in, and, you know, invest in the city. So I, I think, I, I actually think that the London one has risks, huge risks, but it also has incredible possibilities. Now, my experience of working in France is mm. that, well, it's much easier for an architect to step in because you step in to a master plan that has defined the rules. So you don't have to, you know, discuss things from first principle. And it's more about the quality of construction, the quality of design that you are going to introduce into this plan. Therefore, architecture, if you like, wins. Yeah. But the risk of that is that, you know, you've made a plan at a certain moment and plans take, you know, years to develop. And sometimes these plans are out of sync mm -hmm. or can fall mm -hmm. out of sync with the needs of the time. So I, I think that they have, they have pros and cons. For sure, in terms of delivering quality buildings, I think the French system has a lot of merit. Yeah. Yeah. So, but with the architecture foundation, I didn't know that you've been discussing this. So, what, what, <laughs> what, what's, what's the plan? What's the, what's the AF plan for this? Well, we've noticed. I think that a lot of London boroughs are kind of aware of some of their skills mm. shortages, and mm. there's, um, I see a lot of young, bright architects suddenly choosing to move into the public sector. That kind of hasn't been the case for like 50 years, and there's been a, a wave. And you can think of people like Pooja or Finn Williams, um, who kind of led that charge and are now have created kind of fast track schemes for people who want to jump out of architecture and jump into public service instead, which seems very relevant because I, I, I kind of can't stop looking at Grenfell Tower over your shoulder, which I kind of see as like possibly one of the most disastrous failures of like public responsibility over architecture in that it was essentially council housing, like managed by an arm's length um, <laughs> responsibility, distancing, holding company or like a management company. And it all went kind of disastrously wrong and many, many people died. Mm. And I think it will be remembered as, as a kind of, well, I hope it will be remembered as a like seminal turning point in when the public kind of woke up 
and took responsibility for buildings again. If I look over your other shoulder, I can see Trellick Tower by Erno Goldfinger, which I guess I would see as like one of the great triumphs of public agency in, in architecture, this kind of heroic Hungarian testing new models of social housing, people being moved in there and having facilities that they could have never dreamed of before. Mm. And uh, the Balfron Tower, which is also by him in East London in Poplar, um, you have these stories of kind of families going in there and uh, it's the first time they've got a toilet in the same flat because previously their toilet might have been shared or at the, the end of a yard. And they've got a telephone intercom that they can use to kind of see who's knocking on the door downstairs. And he's kind of We've really lost touch with that kind of ambition, the idea that the public, because they, they were public-led buildings, could be the, the body that is driving up standards and helping people to live in better and more healthy ways. And now the story is Grenfell Tower, this kind of just incredible shirking of responsibility. And I wondered, you've talked before about the kind of political agency of architecture and the need for architects to be politically informed and think of themselves as as activists as well as designers. And I wondered if you could explain a bit about like, yeah. that No, view. I mean, you just brought a very good example, you know, in the question of housing. You know, architects may be in, you know, in the same week, be working one minute on housing, another minute on uh, a kind of an education building, uh, another minute uh, on a retail project or a museum. And in each one of these, there are different issues at stake. Mm. And we are defining the environment in which people sleep and shop and view art and learn. And, you know, all those little decisions that we make add up to huge differences in people's uh, everyday life and relationship also to each other. And therefore, I, I do think that we need to keep reminding ourselves that, yes, for example, in the question of housing, it would be great if the public sector would, you know, deliver more housing. Mm-hmm. But actually, we can be as creative and also put our kind of responsible hat on when we are working for the private sector. I really don't think that the power and the potential of architecture in terms of making contribution to the good of society Mm. depends on the budget you have Mm -hmm. or depends ultimately even on the client you have or the site you have. It's about how do you make decisions in the circumstances that you're making that put people right there in the equation. Mm. And there are many choices. My experience is that, you know, uh, yes, uh, great projects, their ambition are always more than the means, and therefore you have to work very hard, you go through frustration and hiccups, but that actually there is always a choice. There is always a choice of how do you put things together, how do you arrange things, what materials you use, etc. And our power and agency is at the scale of our own instruments. You know, we can, of course, re- remind ourselves that we are citizens and we can go and march and, you know, write petitions, which are very important and we, we need to act, be citizens too. But I do think we have a lot of power in our hands. Mm. And despite the fact that many people think that, oh, architects have, are less powerful because they have to work with a lot of engineers and consultants. Again, I don't think that architects are less empowered. In fact, they, I think they are more informed. 
when they are working with other people, when they collaborate. Because the task of the architect, which is to assemble all these expertise as an architectural solution, mm. has never changed. Mm. I guess like another way that architecture intersects with these kind of ethical and political mm. issues is less to do with the buildings we make and more to do with the offices that we run and the people who we hire and the people who kind of get jobs. And there's a sort of big campaign over the last few years highlighting a lack of diversity in architecture. And that's like there's a, a general male bias. There's a significant white bias. There's significant middle class bias. And all of these things, there's been magazines creating awards for women in architecture. There's been, I recently set up a, a writing course uh, for BME, sort of aspiring design critics. And there are these kind of initiatives coming forward that are aiming to diversify the architectural world and the kind of curation and writing world that tags along for the ride with architecture. And I w kind of wonder where your your current feelings are on that. I know it's something you've written about mm -hmm. and spoken about, mm -hmm. but obviously as a, as a non-white female architect, mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of people looking at you as a kind of role model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how does that feel and how do you place yourself within that dialogue? I mean, I've always tried to focus on being creative uh, rather than uh, look at my kind of minority positions, which I have many, you know, as a kind of a handicap. And I've thought that actually through the work that I do and my office does, we can overcome any prejudice that there might be. I have to say, as I've got older, I think there are things there that we need to address. Mm. What I'm not sure is whether that's actually to do with the field of architecture itself. Because I look at my, my own office and for me, you know, people can be of any gender or any place. And we have a mix of people from, you know, different places. And, and I think that I, I hope to think that that's how it works in all architectural practices. And there is certainly a lot more awareness and it's being discussed. And I hope if there are any kind of issues, it will be ironed out. And surely that's kind of easy. I think when we step out and work with people outside and architects, as you know, you know we, we have to work with, with clients, with, you know, uh, QSs, and we have to work with project managers and with security consultants. <laughs> I mean, it goes on uh, forever. Mm -hmm. uh, that, as I said, I welcome that collaboration. But I have to say that 99% of the time, I'm the only woman in the room. And it doesn't bother me. That's how I've always known architecture to be. But I have wondered recently how the other side thinks with me being the only woman in the room and whether consciously or unconsciously it affects the likelihood that they m might give a woman a job. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's probably natural that people are more drawn to people who are like them. So very often people say, you know, women, why are they not more? Why do women step out and don't go to, for example, to make their own offices? Yeah. Well, you know, it's not very easy. Mm. I don't think it's because women are less capable, but it's quite hard because architecture is also running a business when you, you know. So I'm not sure if the problem is when you're working in an office. I'm not sure if that's specifically an architectural issue because we are finding out with all these, you know, Me Too and et cetera coming out that actually there is a cultural, societal issue that we, we, need to, we need to really address. 
that's not particular to architecture. But in the case of why is it that more women don't go out, you know, and set up their own office, I think it's if we would make it easier for them to get work, yeah. they might be more likely to set up their own office. That's you the know? thing, isn't it? We, <laughs> we, we kind of talk about who's the director of your board. Do you have 50-50 representation in the kind of senior staff? Do you have equal pay for the junior staff? We don't tend to talk about who are the developers giving the jobs to? All right, Lend-Lease, um, massive developer, sites all over the L- London and, and the wide country. Show us your 50-50 balance of firms that you've appointed to build the city. I guess I, I kind of feel like it's time for the conversation about diversity to mature or become a bit more ambitious and say, OK, we've talked a lot about inside the profession, but actually we don't make the city on our own. <laughs> There's all these other players out there and we need to kind of take the campaign to them because we can give as many awards to inspiring young female architects that we like. But if there aren't the jobs there coming from the white male developer who needs an architect and tends to pick their mates that they go drinking with, then we've still got the same problem. And of course, you wouldn't go and start an office if you're a woman because you know that the clients aren't going to come to you. They'll go to the guy instead. So I do feel like there's, there's this kind of problem in our discourse where we're, we're kind of beating ourselves up, but somehow we're not actually tackling the people who have the power. Why does the mayor not set a 50-50 standard for all the frameworks, for all kind of TFL or public jobs? That would be a very easy thing to achieve. Frameworks are like a kind of list of approved designers that you can appoint for different kinds of jobs. And lots of boroughs adopt these frameworks when they're picking an architect for something. And if we were just to make those frameworks balanced, I think overnight you'd see a massive difference in the diversity within the profession. And I'd make the same demands for BME representation uh, and other kinds of diversity as well. So, yeah. I, 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 I would <laughs> welcome that. I mean, I, it's a little bit sad that we have to kind of, in a way, enforce it. But I think maybe that's, we need that as a first, mm. you know, until the situation balances. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at White City Place. In conversation today are architect Farshid Musavi and critic and designer Phineas Harper. You have set up an initiative for nurturing creativity in writing Mm. for minorities. Tell me how that came about. Yeah, so this is is the New Architecture Writers Project, or NOR, and I've made it with Tom Wilkinson, and then we have a kind of board of trustees, of which you are one, mm-hmm. um, who are supporting the project. And I guess I came from a desire I used to be an architectural editor, and we were thinking about, are the pool of people that we're commissioning to write regularly sufficiently representative of the country as a whole? I mean, it actually, it was an international magazine, so even like the world as a whole. And realising that there was just very, very few black Asian writers that we were able to find. So I guess we identified um, just an astonishing lack of diversity. And architectural writing is a very small industry. I'm not going to pretend this is like some gigantic career path that everyone should have access to. It's kind of, it's niche and it's not very well paid. But it did seem so strange that architecture itself is kind of quite diverse. You actually have 32% of people starting architecture degrees our BME. Now, the country as a whole is is not even that diverse. So kind of on day one, architecture is very, very mixed. And then it 
just tails off. And there are all sorts of barriers in the way that kind of get in people's way and they have to drop out. And so we felt like if we could create a free course that very rapidly challenged these kind of quite talented young writers with different kinds of assignment and introduced them to kind of leaders in the field, expanded their contacts and their skills, then hopefully some of those people, not necessarily all of them, but some of them might think about taking that up as a career and we would be able to diversify the the kind of workforce of architectural journalism, which then has a knock-on effect on on who gets published. Because that's kind of a thing. It's like Adrian LaHood, who's also on the board and is the dean of the, of the School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art, he says, you know, diversity is not the end, it's the means. The objective is not to have representation, it's what happens next. You know, what are we missing out on because we're not representative? What kind of new ideas or new kinds of buildings or new kind of writing or new kind of media would we be able to benefit from if we weren't cutting out this huge proportion of the population based on like irrational stereotypes and structural barriers? And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because there, there is this sort of assumption sometimes that like, oh, if we could just get 50-50 on the board of directors, then we'd be fine. Mm-hmm. And in a way, like, no, no, that, that's like day one. That's right. Like, <laughs> it's what comes next mm-hmm. that's exciting. Well, I mean, I think what is really, for me, uh, very, very special mm. about No is that, you know, you are not from one of your, those, neither you nor, nor Tom. Because normally these initiatives are started by people from the minority groups. And in this case, it's not. And I think that that's really special. Because like you say, ultimately, what you want to do is, it's not about going from one kind of um, uh, majority to another. But it's about actually uh, arriving to a richer, to a richer society, frankly. Mm -hmm. So I I think that that's absolutely special. Maybe we can link this to the issue of housing. Mm -hmm. And I think that Mm -hmm. we've talked about this before, which is that, and it also relates to the issue of the city, which we first discussed. So People say there is a shortage of housing, shortage of affordable housing. The initiatives, to me, feel always very segmented. So we get co-living housing yeah, built yeah. for the young. We, we get housing for the elderly, you know, affordable housing for people who uh, supposedly are on a lower income. Mm-hmm. We've got luxury housing. But this gets us into a kind of a divided society. You know, if we all go and live in separate buildings you know, sleep in separate buildings, different areas of the city, obviously, we are not going to allow for social mobility. We are not going to allow for like-minded thinking. Whereas if you live in a building where actually a certain amount of it, a proportion of it is given to students, a certain proportion of it is given to affordable housing, a certain proportion of it is given to perhaps more luxury, um, higher level income, you know, we start bringing people closer to each other and we... We allow for that kind of, you know, encounter mm-hmm. that is about a real city. Uh, so somehow my worry with the provision of housing is that it's too much about numbers rather than what are we trying to achieve? Yeah. You know, if affordable housing is not being considered or has not been in the recent past in London, what has it led to? It's not just the housing. It has led to segregation of society. What do you think? Well, yeah, it's 
if you travel around and you talk to people about what, why they like London, often people say, oh, it's the mix. It's the way that you can be walking from kind of glamorous middle class streets and then find yourself in a council estate and somehow it's all integrated and there's sort of a mix of people everywhere you go. And I kind of agree with that, except that that's the absolute opposite of the way that we're building housing today. And it's not going to be very long before that mix that people really value and gives this city its kind of vivacity and dynamism is like eradicated, eroded. So, yeah, and I think this is where we have to think a bit bigger than just our industry. I totally agree that we have some agency as designers, but we need to be going to the mayor and saying, look, you know, why is your housing design guide set up exclusively for a kind of dream of nuclear family living, which is hopelessly out of date and was always a bit of a fantasy. I I was knocking on doors um, for the Labour Party ahead of the last general election. And I had the, you know, the electoral register in front of me and you, you kind of go up to the doors and you can see roughly who lives in each house because it tells you like who's living there. And what struck me was this, just like there are no nuclear families. There's very, very few. I think I knocked on like 100 doors in a day and maybe one or two of those was your kind of two parents, 2.3 children or whatever. Most people live in unconventional ways, which is in no way reflected by the way that we design homes. Or delivering homes. No, not at all. Not Not at at all. all. Not at all. And so you brought your Harvard students Mm. over to London and to spend like a sort of quite intense week looking at different kinds of housing from the past. And I wondered what they, well, what you, but also what they kind of came away with out of that process. Well, as you know, we went and visited Neve Brown. Yeah. And, you know, that really touched them a lot Mm. because, you know, we went to one of his schemes that he was living in and they saw how, you know, Neve Brown had managed to connect the big scale of, you know, these big blocks and how they had formed part of the city. They had a vision about how also a community would kind of relate to each other. But then down to the kind of the details of the house and how, you know, it, it allowed for some level of, you know, empowerment over your own space, taking, you know, partitions and walls away, but also how you know, the relationship between inside and outside. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think he was such a great architect and his projects were so amazing. I think for them, it set the bar so high for them, so high, that in a way it made the teaching for me all semester incredibly easy because I didn't have to, (laughs) seriously, I didn't have to tell them what they have to aim at. Yeah. It, Neve had already done it, yeah. which was great. But they also, of course, saw, you know, the more um, perhaps the commercial housing that has been popping up in London, which is probably not so dissimilar to parts of New York, etc. Uh, I think it was great for them to see London. We, you know, went to see a few other schemes. I think what they took away with them was the desperate need to bring the different social strata of the city together. And that's really kind of was the project of the studio. And I have to say, it is absolutely my dream for housing, where one day people will, when they are buying their or renting their flat, they would ask for what is the diversity factor of that building. (laughs) That's my dream. (laughs) 
So, you know, yeah. if you look at what's happening now with neighborhood apps, for example, you see that people in their neighborhood, they're not in one building, but in their neighborhood, they reach out to each other to ask for services mm-hmm. from each other mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. cannot do themselves. Yeah. So, you know, kind of a busy executive wants to have somebody doing his ironing, you know, somebody would do that for them or, or a student f- repairing phones for an elderly in a building. So I think there are already indications that we know that our lives be- will become richer if we have friends or neighbors mm. who are different to us. Mm. And if you imagine that in one building and where that would perhaps become part of a time bank thing and would reduce your rent or your service charge because you're doing things for each other, yeah. we're really building the idea of a community to the architecture mm. rather than making a bit of green space and imagining that people are going to become friends and meet outside. <laughs> so that's my dream. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful dream. That was architect Farshid Musavi and critic and designer Phineas Harper. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Deanna Coke project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by Cassie Galpin, and edited by Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at White City Place or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com and subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes. Give us a rating or write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. Thought Starters.